0: I'm Carrie. And
1: I'm Amy, and you're listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover.
0: This is a show where two different friends, Amy is like a golden retriever, and I am like a grumpy cat, talk about all the amazing advantages that come from living a bookish life.
1: Each week, we do a deep dive Q&A with a book lover, an author awesome, a bookseller, bingo, a member of a book club, marvelous. We chat with bibliophiles from all over about why stories are integral to who they are.
0: Our guest this week, Court Stevens, is outreach director for a public library and the author of six young adult suspense novels. Her most recent, We Were Kings, came out this past February and is her contemporary version of an Agatha Christie locked room mystery where the main character, Nyla King's dysfunctional family and secrets, means everyone is a suspect of a murder that took place 20 years earlier.
1: But first, we wanted to break from our usual banter this week to chat with Kelly Nuz, who's working to bring a book truck to Louisville. Foxing Books is a project in the works and the focus of a Kickstarter campaign. We wanted to spread the word and offer our support. Here's a snippet of our conversation with Kelly.
0: Normally, at the start of every show, Amy and I talk about bookish things or what's going on in our lives. But today we wanted to invite somebody on who has something more pressing and important than our cats and our children (laughs) and their whatever it is they're doing. So Kelly Nuz has joined us. She is the brains behind Foxing Books. So Kelly, thanks for
2: joining us. Hello, thanks. I can also talk about my cats.
1: We're always up for people talking about their animals of any type. But, you know, I think that book lovers, they always dream about opening their own bookstore and how awesome that might be. And you were sort of in the process of doing that. And National Independent Bookstore Day was just this past weekend. So tell us a little bit about this project that you've been working on.
2: Yeah, Foxing Books right now aims to be a book truck, a mobile bookstore for all of Louisville, for every Louisville neighborhood. You know, we already have a lot of great independent new and used bookstores in the city, but there are plenty of spaces throughout the city that just don't have that opportunity to have a bookstore in their neighborhood. So what we aim to do is to bring books to them. And we're starting out small with the truck, but we also have plans for a build-out in South Louisville off of Taylor Boulevard. It's an old school building, actually. It's the old Hazelwood Schoolhouse. And it kind of started because my husband and I obtained this building, um, and originally I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And then I was like, oh, that would be a nice place for a bookstore, and I tried to get several other people <laughs> to start this business. And it was kind of like, a, what's that book? Uh, the Little Red Hen, the like, oh. I'll do it myself <laughs> moment. And I was like, fine, I'll just do it myself. And so I've been working on it for the past, I don't know, two years, maybe. I mean, I know you said you tried to get other people to okay. do it, but
1: have you always had this dream of opening a bookstore? Or is that just me?
2: <laughs> no, no, I was definitely that person. I was 100% that person. I think like all through college, like different projects and stuff that I had to do, all had to do with, you know, centered on opening a bookstore or opening a comic bookstore. And I'm that person that if I'm in another city, I'm going to like check out their bookstore. You know, some of my favorite books are from other cities. So I I really wanted to create that space for Louisville, you know, to give somebody that opportunity to find like a little treasure and take it home with them.
0: You know, if you have a car and if you're able, you might think, well, there's a Barnes and Noble or, Mm -hmm. you know, there's Carmichael's and they're only eight miles away or three miles away. But depending on what your circumstances are, transportation is not easy for everybody in Louisville. Mm -hmm. You know, for some people, it is really, really difficult to get Across town. Tell us a little bit about sort of your your idea for what this truck will look like and how you envision it moving throughout the city. Mm
2: -hmm. You know, I, I think you're right in that Louisville is a very car dependent city still, and it just doesn't have that public transportation that other, you know, bigger cities might have. And with the book truck, you know, we can come to those different neighborhoods that, you know, it's hard to get all the way across town. And access those books and have that book buying experience. Also, with the pandemic these past two years, people don't always feel comfortable going inside. So having books outside and having like an open air experience, some people still feel more safe doing that. And I think a lot of shopping experiences have changed in that way. that people kind of want things to come to them a little bit more. So what we're planning to do with the truck is basically have a schedule on where it's going to be to start with and have three or four locations where you can find us each week, as well as having delivery. So if you order from our website that we're working on creating, we will be able to offer free local delivery where we just deliver the book to your uh, front door or you you'll be able to pick it up from the truck as well. So really, just the convenience right now of bringing books to people is what we're focused on, and how to make it easiest for those who maybe can't get out, or maybe they don't want to get out. And you know, we're here to accommodate those needs and those wants.
1: Explain the name of your of your bookstore,
2: Foxing Books. Yeah, when I was dreaming about this idea, um, I was looking at different terms for books and i came across foxing which i had never heard before and it's actually that like speckled kind of rusty look of that paper takes on as it ages oh yeah yeah. i've always really liked the way that that looked it's a Um, patina you know every you know
1: patinas are kind of cool right yeah If
0: you use use that word, I'm going to start referring to my skin that way. I'll be like the patina of my middle-aged skin. And it it makes it sound so much better, doesn't it? It sounds romantic. It does.
2: Yeah. So I really just liked the way that sounded. And I thought that we could have a little fox be part of, you know, the logo and everything. And I just, it just kind of grew from there
0: launching a book truck, as you're trying to do with Foxing Books, is not an inexpensive endeavor. So tell us a little bit about, you've got a Kickstarter
2: for that? Yes. Yes. So right now we have a truck. It's a mini truck, but it's a small Japanese style truck. But it's like if you took like a huge box truck and you just shrunk it down. (laughs) And it's just a cute little small truck. We have a door on each side. We need to build a uh, awning for it to keep the books dry. I just kind of randomly found it. There was a fire department in Indiana, so I got it from them, and it's really rusty, drivable. It's in good shape as far as that goes, but it needs a tune-up. There's a lot of rust. It needs a paint job. We need books, and we need to make it look cute. <laughs> And I think people underestimate, it. they think, oh,
1: well, you know, you have the bus, it's not that mm-hmm. big. How how much right. money could be involved with something like that? But I think it's more than what people think. I think there's yeah. a lot of costs involved with opening a bookstore or even a book bus.
2: Yes. Like the, you know, the paint job itself is going to be between three dollars and $5,000, mm-hmm. plus just getting the logo on there, you know, getting a new muffler. There's just all these small things that add up very quickly, as well as just stocking the bus with books like books are very expensive and since the pandemic you know supply lines have been cut or stalled and like those things have become more expensive if you're interested in contributing there's actually a breakdown on the kickstarter page as well as uh, i put a post on instagram that kind of breaks down where all all the money is going towards So
1: you have this Kickstarter campaign for people to donate. And so when does that go through?
2: It started April 12th and
0: it ends May 12th. Where can people find, if they want to just kind of look up more information or if they're Mm -hmm. interested in contributing to your project, where do
2: they look? Where do they go? If they just go to the Kickstarter, kickstarter kickstarter.com and look up Foxing Books, our campaign will come up. Every little bit helps. You know, people think that maybe a $10 amount will, isn't a lot, but really a lot of $10 ma- amounts will get us to our goal. So anything that you can contribute is wanted and needed.
0: Well, it sounds very exciting and fingers crossed that that you all get the contributions and, and we're able to to see Foxing Books launch because it sounds very exciting. And Amy may be following you all, all over the city once <laughs> you get rolling.
2: <laughs> Thank you so okay. much.
0: That would be so cool to have a book truck in the city. Court Stevens was actually a bookseller at Parnassus Books in Nashville and loved it. It was great to chat with two booksellers who are book lovers in one episode.
1: So let's listen to our fun interview with Court.
0: Court Stevens, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me.
1: So you've been writing YA novels for a little while now. At our last count, you had six, I think, published young adult novels. So what drew you to begin writing YA novels in the first place?
3: Well, I suppose a couple of things. One is I didn't know what YA was. And so I kind of came to it through a door that was just its purest form, which is I was a student minister and I spent all this time with my kids, just taking them around the country just investing in their weeks and so when I fell in love with writing the natural voice that came out of me was their voice when you work with teenagers like you know what that voice sounds like and so it's not like I set out I wasn't reading YA and thought oh I want to write a YA book I was around teenagers and absorbed their voice and started writing and so it came out as their voice and so then I immediately because I knew Um, The age of the protagonist was quite young. I started reading books that were in that category, and then I joined the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, and they helped me identify what genre it was that I was actually writing and what that would mean for me in the publishing world if I wanted to move from, you know, a hobbyist to a professional.
0: Because when I tend to read YA, like a lot of times, even though I work with middle and and high school students, and so I, I'm attracted to that age group because I feel like the vulnerability of that age, you never really lose that. I, I think you lose the confidence of that age, <laughs> but I don't think unfortunately, <laughs> right, right. But I don't think you ever lose that sense of who am I, what am I doing. But at the same time, you know, even though I really like that age group, as an adult now, I'm almost fifty. And I tend to find myself like when I'm reading YA, having my adult voice be like, oh, my gosh, why are you doing that? You know, like kind of the stuff I do as a mom to my kids, you know, that I maybe don't say, but I think in my head, I'm like, what is wrong with your brain? You know, so do you struggle with that ever as an adult writing YA where you sort of have to shut your adult voice of reason and fully developed prefrontal cortex (laughs) so that you can write the story?
3: You know, that's a great question. I probably have a lot of answers to it. One is that I don't actually read a ton of YA anymore. And that sounds terrible. But what I've found is that what fills my creative well, is story itself rather than story from a certain point of view. Mm -hmm. And so you guys know how it is like there's, you have kids, you have jobs, you have careers, you have hobbies, you have another profession at times, you know, and so I'm always juggling. And that means my time is very, very valuable to me. And so if you only have a certain amount of reading time, I choose to intake stories that I love and am satisfied by, and then go back and analyze what made me satisfied. And then I pull them into the YA frame. And so I don't often have to find myself, unless I'm reviewing a book, for a critique partner, Mm -hmm. or if someone has asked me to blurb a book, I don't just naturally gravitate toward what you would call traditionally like young adult books that are full of angst. Mm. Now there's plenty of young adult books that are not full of angst that it's just a story and it happens to be that a young person is the hero of it. And I have no problem extending into that space and believing that young adults can be amazing protagonist because I've seen them be in real life so as long as it feels like that to me that's easier for me to get into now having said that I think those angsty books play a huge role Mm -hmm. and I think they need to exist oh yeah and I don't think they are less than by any means because I think sometimes as adults we're like yeah we're over that right (laughs) Yeah, I don't have to feel that way anymore. And we're like, yeah, right. You feel that way. Right. (laughs) You know, you just don't express it the same way. And so, you know, having watched, you know, the 15 year old kid that lives in my house read angsty books and, and learn from them, I would never devalue their place in the world. Right. I just know that they're not my favorite stories and I don't have enough time to engage in a lot of stories that aren't my favorites anymore. Right. You know, your question initially was, what do you like about writing in the genre? And what I really like about writing in the genre is that means that I get to talk to real live students later. And if anything keeps me in way, it's probably that. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, I've aged up my characters to where they're right on that line. 18, 19 is about the max of what I can pull off in young adult, but I've I've shifted toward that age protagonist now. And I really don't want to go any further currently because I still travel and spend so many days talking to young people and having them as an audience is probably even better than the process of writing for them. I love Getting in there and listening and hearing from them and seeing them and having the opportunity to encourage them. Um, I spent all day yesterday doing that. Like, I go from high school to high school, and I'm lucky enough to have a job that also supports that as well. And I see it as part of my mission and kind of calling um, within writing. Mm -hmm.
0: What tends to be your challenges when you're writing it? And and that may be just sort of scheduling time to do it, but what do some of those challenges look like for you?
3: Oh well definitely scheduling time to do it. I love the the job field I'm in. I'm also a the community outreach manager for Warren County Public Library and so I'm the liaison between the community and the library. I love the fact that libraries are safe spaces for all people regardless of you know social status or whatever types of diversity internally and externally people deal with. I feel like libraries are always a welcoming place or they should be and ours is and um, i love that i get to cultivate that safe space for people um, and so i find that work to be very important too and so holding that in one hand and writing and um, telling stories that would encourage people and entertain people and hopefully take them out of their world and into another world I hold that also very high up. And then I have a family. And so, you know, by the time you add to that, you're like, okay, so when do I do this? Um, That sounds amazing. If somebody would just tell me. And so like now it's all very kind of scheduled. And so that's the biggest challenge. And then this is probably not what writers normally say, but I don't really like the first draft. Mm. The first draft is so hard for me and I always know I'm going to have to rewrite it. And so it feels like the first draft is trying for an accumulation of word count, mm. <laughs> because that's what I have to have in order to go back and make it into something real. I think it's always hard to work on something you know you're going to throw away. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that process doesn't delight my brain initially. Then I'll get into it. I'm like, okay, okay, here we are. Here we are. Now it's feeling story shaped, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but that first little bit of it, just being word count and like telling yourself the story. I don't really love that discovery part. I like the surgery part of it later and getting like everything tighter and better. And, oh, these are real people now to me. Um, And how do I make them real to everyone else?
1: You had mentioned that you don't necessarily read a lot of YA, but you like reading great stories and that sort of makes it into your writing a little bit. Who are some authors that have great stories that have inspired you?
3: Oh, wow. I mean, that's actually easy because while I say I haven't read a lot of YA lately, Ruta uh, is one one of my dearest friends and one of, I think, one of the best writers in the game, no matter what age range um, you're talking about. A local Kentucky guy, my critique partner for a very long time also, David Arnold. He is fantastic. He tells a story like nobody else. And I love the way he brings, it's just a certain brand of creativity to his work that no one else is engaging with. And I always find it when I read him. My favorite book of all time is a YA book. Um, It's a book called I Am the Messenger by Marcus Zusak. Hmm. and most people know Marcus Zuzek because he's also the author of The Book Thief, right. which is often assigned in schools, and, of course, there's a movie for it. But he has this earlier book called I Am the Messenger. I think it's absolutely brilliant. I love it with my whole heart. And then, of course, um, Stephen Chbosky, Perks of Being a Wallflower. If I had to have read a YA book when I was closest to the Y range, that would have been in there. And then the other book I read when I was that age group, other than Chronicles of Narnia, which are actually probably middle grade that I loved so much and were my Harry Potter of the time is Ender's Game. Oh yes. You know, and I'm not a huge fan of Orson Scott Card the person, but my gosh, I love Ender's Game. Yeah. So good. So good. And so I've had lots of opportunities to fall in love with this age group. And I actually tend to reread those books by those authors fairly regularly. Rather than go to new work, I just kind of go back and let myself enjoy who they are.
1: I'm interested in d- dipping into some other Marcus Zuzak because I've only ever read The Book
3: Thief. For I'm the messenger, you're just there and you are with the best underachiever in the world trying to figure <laughs> out life. And he's just absolutely delightful, Ed Kennedy. If I could go to, you know, they always ask you those questions, like, if you could go to tea with five literary characters. <laughs> and I'm like, well, it would there'd probably be alcohol involved <laughs> rather than tea. And it would definitely be Ed Kennedy from I'm the messenger.
0: Well, you've sold me on it. I've already put it <laughs> on my TV. Right, so. <laughs> so you call your books coming of truth novels rather than coming of age. So what, what's the difference?
3: Well, that's a, a court Stevens term for sure. So you're not going to necessarily find it out there, but you know, we all find ourselves, in my opinion, coming of age over and over and over in life. I've known some 30-year-olds who still need to come of age. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but what I have found is that the thing that actually makes us come of age is to come of truth. The thing that ages us and matures us is understanding parts of the world that we didn't know before, parts of ourselves we didn't know before. And one of the things that I'm trying to do especially when I started writing was helping people better understand themselves in the world and the context in which they live. And that includes their past pains and past triumphs and future. The things that, you know, if they have that past are going to be challenges for them. Mm -hmm. And I think if you can come of some truth, you can always hold on to that truth, but you're still going to have to come of age over and over and over again. But hopefully we get to hold on to our truths That's where that came from, especially because the first novel I put out, uh, my debut, was Faking Normal. And uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's kind of one of those hefty topics. You know, one in every four women, one in every four men at the time period that the novel was released has experienced some sort of sexual trauma in their life. And so I was interested in writing a book not just about like let's land in the trauma and hold on to it but what does it look like for someone who has that trauma to fall in love again or to ever trust someone again you know and that's some sacred space Mm -hmm. you know and if you figure out at least how to trust someone you're never going to get rid of the trauma it's always going to coexist with you But the skills that you use to move through it, I think are better if you really understand yourself and you don't have to do it by yourself. Mm. And it felt like when I put that novel out, I thought it would be young adults who read it. But of course, like 75% of the people who read YA are adults. (laughs) And the emails I got in the wake of that novel being published were from every age range of woman. Like I got an email from a woman in her 80s who told me her trauma story and she'd never told that trauma story before. Mm -hmm. And people of all ages told me that they were finding the courage to go to the police station and tell their story earlier. And like, I could go back through like a hundred of those stories and I would tell you, it never mattered what age those people were. They were definitely coming of truth. Mm -hmm so that's kind (laughs) of, that's
1: where it came from. That's got to be touching, but also heavy to have you be the first person that they've ever shared that kind of story with. To think that something that you created, your work inspired that coming of truth has to be. um,
3: It's uh, sacred. uh, Yeah. It's very sacred to me. And um, I honor those stories and that bravery to tell somebody for the first time. I mean, you're kicking ass (laughs) to be real honest, you know, like that's so scary and so intimidating. And there you are sitting in the middle of your truth and you're willing to say, I don't have to hold this just by myself anymore. It's like the bravest moments of people's lives. Mm -hmm. You know, like you ever watch a television show that is like just made for inspiration, like the world's toughest race or amazing race. And like they're completing these unbelievable tasks I think those emotional tasks are equal to climbing Everest. Carrie
1: read The June Boys and I read We Were Kings. And so when we were talking about them, there seemed to be some similar themes going on. So The June Boys is about a kidnapper who takes teenage boys each June, holds them for a year and then returns them usually. And your most recent YA novel, We Were Kings, was published just a couple months ago. And it's about an 18-year-old named Nyla King who has 30 days to save her mother's best friend from being executed on death row for the murder of Nyla. Aunt twenty years ago, murdered that she didn't commit, and the true murder may be from within her mother's family, which Nyla has never met because her mother cut off contact with them before Nyla was born. Tell us a little bit about where these crime ideas come from.
3: <laughs> so, I am someone who studies writing. I love a good mystery, but I mean, I'm also the person that has master class and does the james patterson class and i'm always watching films to analyze why did i like that why is that brilliant the thing that really pushed me toward we were kings even though it's not similar in the death penalty at all was watching knives out
1: mm. oh, oh yeah uh-huh. oh my
3: god i loved it It was so <laughs> amazing i mean it's like it's hilarious. It's cheeky. It's it's deep and also a fantastic mystery. And mm-hmm. it felt the closest to me to something that Agatha Christie would have done, yeah. you know, with the modern day brilliance shine to it. And so I kind of set out to could I create a family conundrum mystery that just had everybody stumped? And then from there, I started playing with what kind of twists and turns would make that the most fun I've never really gone at it like that. And then the texture of the death penalty came in because I watched a movie a very long time ago. It's not like it's one of those ones that anybody's like, oh yeah, I saw that more than likely you didn't, but it's called the life of David Gale. And it just always got me. And it has the death penalty as a major theme in it. Not this, not what, what Nyla is dealing with, but just that story. And, of course, I actually loved The Green Mile. And so there's some kind of emotional textures and depths. That's one of the first movies, especially long movies, that I remember watching when I was, I know I watched it when it came out. Mm-hmm. And I uh, was so amazed with that character. I just held on to it from years and years and years ago that that just kind of stumped me and like oh like I want to pull something like that into the work and of course there's a certain amount of drama to it because it gives you a timeline and fast-paced ticking clock so that's where We Were Kings came from and then June Boys it started as a story about a kid who wanted to build a castle (laughs) And then I was like, this is boring. Cause you know what happens in the end of it? He either builds it or he doesn't. That's it. There's two outcomes. That's it. Two outcomes. And nobody wants to read that. Nobody's got time for that. But I, I couldn't let go of the castle part. The reason I couldn't let go of the castle is because I'd been in Colorado with a friend of mine and we were teaching writing conferences across the country and she was like oh my gosh we have to go to this place it's called bishop's castle so you can go look it up and it's literally a dude that had a dream to build a castle and he built one and it's not like he built one and he's like an architect or a building contractor no construction background it's like rocks piled on top of rocks and it's five (laughs) stories and you can take a tour of it and you will like you go and you're like this dude doesn't know anything But he knows something. It has a dragon coming out of the front of it. It's just awesome. And you're like, this dude is crazy. (laughs) He is crazy. And then I was like, how far is crazy from dangerous? Mm -hmm. That was the very first question that came in my head. And I was like, I want to explore how far is crazy from dangerous. And I literally built the story around that question. Hmm. If you went to Bishop's Castle, you go in it. Like, you'd be like, yep, that's awesome. And he's still working on it today. And I don't know if he's crazy or awesome or what he is, but I know if I was his neighbor, I'd be like, dude's weird. <laughs> and and so I started playing with that. Like, okay, what would your neighbor think? Mm-hmm. And then, and then it was like, okay, what would your kid think? And then it gets, it gets more fun. We start playing that. What if game you're like, what if your kid doesn't know? Oh, mm-hmm. now we're into crazy. <laughs> you know, what if you spent your kid's college fund to do it and you've been lying all this time? And so I, I I just find those kinds of questions, the space between what parents tell their kids and what they don't mm. fascinating.
1: Well, I wanna go back to We Were Kings for a minute. And you were saying that it was inspired a little bit when you saw the movie Knives Out. And so I actually had a question about that because I've seen one review called the book The Gen Z Version of Clue. And in this book, Nyla's her extended family lives on this island that's in the middle of a Kentucky river, which I thought was very cool. And there's a scene in the book where all of Nyla's dysfunctional families gathered for a very tense dinner, (laughs) which reminded me of an Agatha Christie locked room mystery oh, yeah. um, and those are always some of my favorite mysteries when the culprit is in the house you know so to speak uh-huh. so you were just dying to write one of those scenes it sounds like
3: I really was and like my friends actually now rather than Agatha Christie they call that the red wedding oh right um, yeah <laughs> from Game of Thrones for yeah, people all, who aren't familiar yeah right they're like oh my god Stevens you should go straight red wedding on us and I was like maybe a little but yeah Yes, I do love the tension of everyone's in the room and somebody did it and you're not quite sure who did it. So to write that kind of scene, I actually build an actual map and I put everyone around the table in the map and then I list out who knows what and who doesn't know what. Hmm. And then I start thinking about the things that could come up and who would be the most angry about which piece and what they might do within their character. And then if I haven't actually laid the groundwork for what I think would be the most interesting, I go back and thread it back in Mm. to a character. Because I think for me, when I'm doing that book surgery concept, I work act three to act one and then to act two. Like my questions always at the end of a novel are, is it satisfying for the reader? Because I'm building it for a reader. And so, is it satisfying? Is the scene big enough? And so, I always ask myself, what would make it bigger? What would make it bigger? Hmm. And so, evidently, closed room mystery, Agatha Christie, <laughs> red wedding feels big to me in my head. For a, for a family drama, what's more intense than family dinner <laughs> <It was laughs>
1: with <funny>. guns?
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you, you mentioned families and the family drama at dinner, but, you know, in at least in the June Boys, And I guess also in We Were Kings, there's these mysteries and secrets within families where a story isn't told, isn't sort of passed down to them. So is that something that sort of that idea of things that parents don't tell their children, is that something that's always bothered you, fascinated you, or, you know, maybe you had experience with, I mean, I know with my husband's family, we found out after his grandfather died at 93, that he had been married before he was married to the grandma Mm -hmm. of the family. And it was like, why didn't we know this? Yeah.
3: (laughs) Well, I don't have a ton of those own secrets in my like family lineage, but I am very fascinated by it. I think especially the patchwork of families in the South, the closeness, the dinner table, the everybody piles in one car. Now I know that's not all true now, but in my childhood, the family unit, as crazy and messy as it was or is, was kind of the bedrock of society, where I think now that's spread out so much, like where we, we now so much more accept that friends are family, like you can have a chosen family. And I'm delighted that I can have that because I do have that to this day. But it didn't feel that way as a kid. When I was a kid, I never imagined a world where I might say to my mom and dad, uh, I want to spend Christmas at Carla's house.
0: Mm.
3: She'd be like, are you out of your head? You know, like, <laughs> In the midst of that, this is our family and you're going to show up for it. There often are secrets. You're like, you didn't show up for it. Not really. Not all of you. What what are we scared of people knowing? I do think parent-kid relationships are complicated and they stay complicated mm-hmm. because you have to re-navigate helping them the way they helped you or not and then carrying that. That dynamic never gets less interesting to me. And so you throw some secrets in there
0: and It's next level fun. right? There's also this idea that those secrets are owed. The question, well, why should I feel like I need to know that information? You know, because it it didn't happen to me. It affected great-grandpa or whatever. So why do I feel like somebody owes me that story? You know, which, which I think is an interesting question too.
3: It really is. I love that question because one of my favorite things to say is you don't owe your truths to everyone. And I think we think we do, especially in the world of social media, you know, pull the curtain back. There is no Wizard of Oz. You must live your life, all of your life in front of everyone, (laughs) except no one does, but they pretend that everyone does. What does belong to you? What does belong to someone else? And are we wrong for holding on to it? Because I don't think we are until someone needs that information. But it is tangled because people think
0: they're owed your truths. And I, I think that space is always interesting to navigate. You know, I, I think part of that feeling like these truths need to be told, especially within a family, right? Like this right. this needs to be information that everybody has. I think that blends into the idea that I can't imagine a more uncomfortable feeling than having suspicions about family members yeah. and people you love. And so the, the books, they deal with that. We can't wrap our minds around the idea that someone that we love could do whatever XYZ horrible thing. So how do you play with that suspicion as a writer?
3: Well, that's another thing I often try and teach when I'm in a, a writing class. I have this picture, and I think I did, can describe it well enough that you'll be there with me too. It's of a granddad. Let's imagine that in bibbed overalls. He's standing in front of his blue Ford F one fifty from like nineteen eighty five. There's a American flag on the back of the truck. All right, you got this guy in your yeah, head. Yeah. Okay. Now, do you know who he voted for? <laughs> yeah. More than likely. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. And you got a real good idea of how he feels about most political issues, I bet. <laughs> yeah. And you probably know that he likes cornbread and, and <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. Yeah, so yeah. now you've got that, that person is sealed up in your head. Now, what if I tell you every day that that man gets in his truck, turns on Beyonce and drives to Planned Parenthood <laughs> where he volunteers? <laughs> It's disruptive. (laughs) You know, you're like, this is not what I thought. But here's the reality of people. Everyone has the capacity to be more than one person. Mm -hmm. We are not all just one thing. And so when you can hold the duality of people in your head, suspicion is actually quite easy because we all have maybe not quite that far spread, but everyone has their narrative about us. And then we have our narrative about ourselves and they often don't match. Mm -hmm. So suspicion's not that hard because it's real. Like if you're a person who scrolls Facebook or Instagram or whatever every day and you make up narratives about someone's narrative and and you decide what we feel about those stories, that's the slice of life they're giving us. So it does tell us something, but there's so much it doesn't tell us. I have a master's in counseling and more than anything it probably was better for me than getting an mfa in writing because <laughs> there's copy editors for my terrible grammar you know but like understanding and and being fascinated by people is, i'm really glad that psychology is my background instead <laughs>
1: So you are a former church youth minister. You were a bookseller at Parnassus Books in Nashville, which some people may know as Ann Patchett's, the author That's Ann right. Patchett's bookstore. And now you work at a library. So have those different professions contributed to your writing?
3: Oh, my gosh. Yes. In the best way. In the best way. I cannot say enough good things about Parnassus Books, about Ann Patchett. I love Working there with my whole heart has been, it was amazing. I still would. If if days were not 24 hours and they were 48, I'd work another (laughs) shift at Parnassus every day because I just really love selling books and I love connecting readers to their kinds of stories, especially picture books. That's what my favorite thing to sell was. And of course, being a youth minister taught me that young adults are, I mean, they're the next generation of world changers. They're amazing. We have to pour into them and love on them and remind them that they matter and that they're loved and they can screw up and that we all did. And it's fine. Like, I love telling them things like life is not sink or swim. It's sink and swim. Like, I feel like my life started when I learned to hold success in one hand and failure in the other at the same time, you know. I mean, all I have to do is go to Goodreads. I mean, and that will help me hold success (laughs) and failure in both hands at the same time, you know. I need to be reminded of those kinds of things too and knowing I get to give that kind of encouragement away and that was my starting place in writing. It's so fundamental to who I am and now as a librarian I didn't see that coming. I mean like if I imagined my life I would never have been like yeah you know where I'm going librarian. (laughs) Um, I was at a book festival and I was griping about traffic in Nashville um, my now boss sat down next to me and she's like, you know what would fix that? <laughs> uh, you can move back here and work for me. And I'm like, is that for real? <laughs> I mean, cause I'm literally like, you know, selling books <laughs> at the time and uh, signing books and talking. Because I'd had an opportunity to to travel and speak I'd and so she'd seen my passion for the community and for students and the way I, I try my best to move through the world loving on people. And she just said, we need that at the library, you know, like come on board and be uh, my community outreach manager. And your job would just be to be a liaison between the community and the library and to help manage those relationships. And, you know, I thought that sounds like health insurance. <laughs> um, <laughs> And the thing is, with being a creative is, you know, you can figure out or not figure out whether you can make enough money for right now pretty easily. Like, can I do this job right now? Yeah, I can pay for myself being a creative right now. But what I never could figure out was how to make sure I could pay for myself 20 years from now. Mm. If there was, oh, I don't know, a global pandemic that shut down (laughs) the world that took away half of my income, Because it used to be in traveling and speaking. So she caught me at just this moment. I was asking these big questions and it sounded so much like an answer to prayer for me of how do I keep writing? How do I not abandon this joy and this purpose in my life but use it within a profession that has more security. And I took her up on that offer and I have not been sorry one day. It has been the best fit in my life. It rivals my joy of writing because it's part of it as well. And so I'm just really, really grateful for health insurance and, <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> and uh, that I get to do the things I love for a living. It's nice when those, when those practical things and those things that like inspire joy are able to, to coincide and coexist. It really is. (laughs) You know,
1: you just published your sixth book. What's a main takeaway from your first to your sixth book that you've learned along the way?
3: I would say that the thing I've I've learned along the way is that the stories I hear from people are far more valuable than the stories I'm telling. Mm -hmm. And so if writing and publishing is the door or the gate to those people's stories, I'm willing to do it forever.
1: Well, I think that is the perfect place for us to, to end on that high note. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Court Stevens and
0: with Carrie. Carrie, give me all the details. I need to know what, what you're reading. So, this is a book that I finished a little while ago, and I realized that I hadn't talked about it. The book is called When Stars Are Scattered by Victoria Jameson and Omar Mohammed, and it was a finalist for the National Book Award. It's a graphic novel, and you know that I, I tend to like graphic novels. So, Omar is both the author and he's also a character. In the graphic novel. And it tells about how he and his brother became separated from their mother when Omar was four and his brother was a toddler. So they had lived in a village in Somalia and the village was attacked, their father was killed, and everybody ran, obviously. And the boys ended up in a refugee camp in Kenya. For over a decade. So their father was deceased. They didn't know where their mother was. They didn't know where their sisters were. In the camp, the boys were cared for by an older woman named Fatima. Omar went to school, but his brother, Hassan, who has epilepsy and is nonverbal, stayed with Fatima. (laughs) Eventually, Omar and Hassan were able to move to the US. Fatima stayed behind. So this book is beautifully illustrated, and it captures the hardships of a refugee camp, which is almost like a prison. And in an interview, Omar actually calls it an open prison. Refugees aren't allowed to travel outside the camp. And in the camp that he was at, there's nothing around for miles and miles. So what are they going to do? you know, they can't really leave safely anyway. They, they had to wait in these terribly long lines for food and for water and, and the food is never enough. You know, the first week they would be full and happy and the next week they would be very, very hungry. So I've always been sympathetic to people who leave everything they know and love because of violence. It's not an easy path to have to travel. And this book is an excellent opportunity for middle schoolers and adults to put themselves in the shoes of someone who's lived through such an experience. So I highly recommend When Stars Are Scattered by Victoria Jameson and Omar Muhammad.
1: Maybe I missed this. Is it, It's based on a true story? Yes. Yes. Okay. So
0: Omar Muhammad is the author. He had written his story and then he met Victoria Jameson and talk to her about his story and she does graphic novels and so they combine forces so that he could tell his story but it is about his own life and experiences so it's very touching it's very eye-opening and again it's sort of geared towards middle school but any age above you know sort of the middle school level can definitely get something from it well court what have you been reading
3: well i have a couple different books i've been reading uh, and that's pretty normal for me. I'm an audiobook person as well as a a print copy person. And so on audio right now, I'm listening to The Golden Couple uh, mm-hmm. by Greer Hendricks and Sarah Pekkanen. Fabulous kind of family drama. I'm not all the way through it yet, so I'm not going to go crazy on it. But I like it because it's about an a now unlicensed therapist. <laughs> who has a non-traditional, which it got her uh, removed from her license, approach to marital counseling. And so she's kind of right in the middle of this couple's business and secrets. And so I'm still waiting to find out what's going on there. But if I had to recommend a book that maybe people haven't gravitated toward, the first book I always think of is Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson.
1: Oh, I love that book.
3: I love it with my whole heart. So for those of you that haven't heard of it, it is about two children who spontaneously catch on fire, but that's not the point of the book. <laughs> like, And the person who comes to try and cool them down and take care of them over one summer and how her life intermingles with this family and in the past and in the present. And of course, their dad is a politician trying to get to the White House. And so how inconvenient to have two children who, when they're angry, just burst into flames. Just managed to be so well-written and such a Brilliant distortion, you know, that you know can't happen, but you totally believe it can. And any author that can get you to believe something like Two Children Catch on Fire and not be the primary (laughs) part of the book, I'm here for it. Whatever he writes, I'm going to be reading.
1: I listened to that one on audiobook and it was fabulous. The narrator, her name is Marin Ireland. And so I've since looked up other books that she's narrated because she was just so fabulous narrating that one because sometimes I have trouble listening to fiction. Yeah, audiobook. So yeah, I love that book, and and uh, if you're an audiobook
0: listener, highly recommend the audiobook version. Well, Amy, what have you been up to?
1: I'm going to talk about a book that could be summed up in one word, and that is contrast. And it's probably a word you're going to hear me say a few times while I'm telling you. So be forewarned about that. It's a very small book called Ghost Wall by Sarah Moss, and I saw this book on Instagram, and I was intrigued by the cover because it's a small, dainty book with a very delicate, like a pastoral scene on the front, a lovely spring green. But when you open the book and you read the first line, it's a complete contrast to the cover. So here's the first few sentences. They bring her out, not blindfolded, but eyes widen to the last sky, the last light. The last cold bites her fingers and her face. The stones bruise her bare feet. There will be more stones before the end. Ooh. Yeah. So this first line sounds pretty ominous. And then I was really curious about this book. So this is the story of Sylvie, who's a 17-year-old girl from Northern Britain who is on a two-week historical reenactment with her parents. They join in on a college-level anthropology course where they have to live like ancient Britons from the Iron Age, hunting and gathering for their food, using only tools and knowledge of that time to survive for those two weeks. And Sylvie's father has had a lifelong obsession with this time period. He calls it simpler times, and he sort of makes it grander in his mind. Sylvie was raised on her father's philosophy that modern life is like trash, and everything was more pure and grounded back then. So... This time was also the time period of the bog people. And if you don't know what bog people are, (laughs) Uh (laughs) they were people who were sacrificed or murdered during the Iron Age. And then they were dumped into these peat bogs Which the chemistry of peat bogs sort of preserves the bodies for thousands of years because there's a lack of oxygen getting to the bodies and it stops the decomposition. And a majority of the bog bodies that have been found have been females, usually young women. So, what we come to find out about Sylvie and her family as the story progresses is that both she and her mother are scared of her father and her mother has welts that are that are well hidden and her father has very rigid rules about gender roles and there's no talking back there's no questioning of authority and so there's just this layer of darkness about the story but there's a very relaxed nature uh, with the college students who are on this trip so it's set against the many things that sylvie knows she isn't allowed to do and as a reader you feel this all-encompassing weight of menace that sylvie must feel But the author writes beautifully about nature and about the things you see in a rural English forest, the flora and the fauna. So again, there's this contrast. And eventually this reenactment gets a little too close to reality. And this story goes from being eerie to being scary. This book made me think about the segment of the population who yearns for the good old days. Now, obviously the people that I'm thinking about They're not referring to the Iron Age, but certainly those good old days that they are referring to weren't particularly good for everybody. They weren't particularly good for other races or other genders. So the one caveat I want to want to warn readers about, and it's not the violence, it's that this book doesn't use quotation marks, even though there's a lot of dialogue. And I know that that drives some people absolutely bonkers. So if that is a grammar trigger for you, <laughs> yeah. you, may, you may want to stay away from the book. But this is a case where the cover adds to the mystique of the book, because there's the contrast between the cover that lo- looks like it could be used for the secret garden or the wind in the willows with its nature illustrations. But there's that ever-present touch of violence within the book that you find. And so that's kind of part of the fun of it. The the cover adds a different layer to the story.
3: I just pulled it up to look at it and she means that it looks like a skull, you guys. (laughs)
1: Well, it does look like a skull if the skull was done in whimsical in nature drawing, right? It's so true. But this is a really short book. I think it's even like novella length. You could read it in a day, but it really gives you a lot to think about within those pages. It's literary fiction, but it really uses a deft use of psychological thriller elements. Mm. And it was nominated for the Women's Prize for Fiction, and I recommend it.
0: I was so told again, as soon as I heard fog people.
1: Uh, So again, the name of the book is Ghost Wall by Sarah Moss.
0: There's a ton that I'm adding to my list after this discussion. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, Court Stevens is going to answer her three in the third degree.
1: We're back with Court and we're going to ask her these very probing questions. (laughs) So number one, your bio says that you have a pet whale named Herman and a bandsaw named Rex. And we are very intrigued. So <laughs> give us the hows and whys of these two things in your life.
3: Okay. So the pet whale, Herman, is a tattoo. He goes with me everywhere. Yes, Melville. That's what you're asking. <laughs> uh, I love Herman because one, he's adorable people love the fact that i have a pet whale and then i he's on my arm so i can like swim him across the <laughs> room to you which i also love doing but also the reason i have this tattoo is i was kind of going through a really hard time and you know we have these moments in life that can either like shrink you or add to you and i got to thinking about blue whales there's these enormously large animals and they have hearts that are so big a human can swim through their arteries. Oh, wow. Isn't that amazing? It's just kind of this beautiful idea And I was like, you know, I've got a choice here. I can either make my heart small or I can make my heart big. And what I'd like to do is keep a heart a human could swim through uh, ultimately. And so trying to live a blue whale life. So I got Herman to remind myself of that every day. My bandsaw, Rex, is one of my mini saws. Not like mini, like M-I-N-I, like (laughs) M-A-N-Y, mini. I have many, many, many (laughs) saws. And I don't really know how to use all of them correctly, but I use them. I like to make things and I like the challenge of doing work and figuring things out. And like, I don't mind at all to watch a video and go, Oh, I bet I could take the door off of this (laughs) or this might save me $10. And what this might save me $10 means is I probably better spend $300 on another (laughs) saw, so I can save $10 in the future. I now have this three car garage. That's a workshop and I don't make
0: anything on it that anyone would ever
3: buy. But the things delight me.
0: <laughs> Number two, you were once an Olympic torchbearer. Tell us about that experience.
3: Okay, that's pretty profound. I, I was always, always a athlete growing up and still try to be but now I'm in the part of my life where that's dangerous (laughs) but I played softball growing up and all I ever really wanted to do was believe that someday I would be in the olympics and that really wasn't in the cards but I did play college softball and during the time I was playing softball I found out that I got nominated to be an olympic torch bearer for the 2002 salt lake city winter olympics I really don't know the story behind the nomination I just know that you're in some form or fashion, your community has to nominate you. And my mother called me one day because the letter came to our house at home and said, are you sitting down? Hmm. And we just got, you know, this piece of mail from the Olympics. And um, what that means is you're going to get to hold a torch. And ultimately what that means is you get to hold the flame of the Olympics Hmm. for a hot minute in your hand. And you're like, this flame has touched so many people. And so I still have the torch and because I'm me, I left the ash on it because you pass from torch to torch. Every torchbearer has their own torch and the fire moves. And so Ah. I just go back to that moment quite often. And I think about the longevity of how long that fire has been lit and how it's been passed and the spirit that it carries. And definitely one of the more memorable moments of my life.
1: Okay, so your last question is that I follow you on Instagram and I get the impression that you might live on a farm. Maybe you don't, but you were just gifted some baby goats. So if you're living in the middle of town, that's going to be interesting. (laughs) So I want to know about these baby goats. So tell us more.
0: Um, Okay,
3: so I sort of have a little hobby farm going. I did grow up in the country and uh, I certainly value what it feels like to work with my hands, especially because my brain is tired. My jobs are very brainy. Mm-hmm. And so I really like the ability to get out and work hard, but also to have something that loves you back when you work hard. So I have now at this point in time, I have i have two dogs. One of them is training to be a service dog, my PTSD dog, and to work for the library. Oh. I have um, nine chickens. And then I now have two goats. Actually, four goats. I don't know when this airs, but I haven't even told my mom I bought two more. (laughs) (laughs) Because this is what happens. You're like, I thought goats were hardy. They're not necessarily hardy, but they also have to have a buddy. Mm -hmm. So now I'm afraid that I will lose a goat and then that other goat will be by himself. So I'm just preemptively buying (laughs) more goats for the moment that I lose a goat. But the way this baby goat thing happened is, it was by surprise, let's just say that. I'd planned on getting alpacas someday. You ever had these?
1: No, I don't have them, but (laughs) my daughter almost convinced me to buy some land so that she could have, my, my daughter's a huge animal lover, as am I, but... Because she wanted alpacas and they seem do it like now. super cool animals.
3: <laughs> so do it now. They're like big dogs with long necks. I mean I so I'm not over my I want alpacas. Let's just say that. We'll start. So like someday I will probably also have alpacas. So I'd already bought the fencing. I like purchase things a little at a time. I'm like, I know I want alpacas. So I. Can't. you have to have multiple things. You have to have a shelter. You have to have fencing. So I bought all the fencing. And then I was like, okay, the next thing I'll do is I'll buy the shelter. And then once I have those in place, I will buy the alpacas. So I only have the fencing at this point and, uh, and just a great desire to own alpacas. And I go to a school visit in which they've done an all school read. So everybody there has read the June boys and I'm doing an, a whole assembly. And of course I talk about Gilbert, who is my service dog, because he's adorable and, you know, students don't necessarily care about authors, but by God, you show them a dog. yeah. <laughs> and let's just say at least they had one good moment right, that day, right. you know, and uh, Gilbert is beautiful and I love him so much. So uh, it's easy to talk about him. And so afterward, a kid like beelines to me and just says, we have a farm. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. You're living my best life. And through this exchange, she was just like, you should come out to the farm and I will give you baby animals. And so I was like, is that for real? It's kind of like getting my job at the library. (laughs) Is that a for real statement? I was like, text your mom. Find out if this is real. I also had my 15-year-old with me that day. And so when this 15-year-old standing in front of me offers baby animals, I turn around and look at mine. And she's like... (laughs) glowing, rattling. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I mean, I can just feel <laughs> the words like, oh, please, 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 please. Can we have all of the baby animals that have ever existed in the world? And I'm like, sure. I'm committed to being a Noah. Let's go. So after the school visit, literally drive out to this kid. I met that morning's farm. She is delightful, by the way. Uh, her name is Abby and she put her name in my phone as Abby Goat Girl. So we go out to her farm and make it past the pigs, past the sheep, past the donkeys, past the horses and we get to the goats and I'm like, yeah, we're going to take some goats home. And so that's what we do. We bought two goats that day. We know nothing about goats, but we literally put those two goats in the back of my uh, civic and (laughs) she got in the back of the civic in the center and they both laid down and put their little heads on her lap. And And I thought this is going to work.
1: Talking about the goats and these animals that you've collected. Have you read the book on animals by Susan Orlean? No, you should check into that. It's a, it's a book she published last year, I think, and it's filled with essays just about animals. She also has the habit of like just collecting animals. Yeah. And so I I like her already. (laughs) I I think you might vibe with that. So you should check into that because, um, yeah, it sounds like you a little bit in some ways.
0: (laughs) Well, Core, it has been awesome chatting with you. I feel like if Amy ends up with alpacas, you're yeah. going to be the first to know uh, so. and, and whether they disrupt uh, podcast recording. So oh please, <laughs> I'll come back on and I'll bring my goats. <laughs> Thanks so much for taking time out of your day to speak with us. It's been a lot of fun. It's been delightful. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you all.
1: You can find Court Stevens on Instagram at Courtland, spelled Q-U-A-R-T-L-A-N-D, or on her author website, www.courtneycstevens.com To find out more about Foxing Books, go to their Instagram, at Foxing Bookstore. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at the Perks of Being a Book Lover, or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there live or in archives at forwardradio.org.